morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Yeah, this is the second service. You're supposed to be awake. My name's Roland Smith. If I have not met you before, I'm one of the pastors here on the staff. A lot of Sundays I spend behind this microphone uh, leading worship, and Jonathan kind of invited me to take a few steps up and close the series, so honored to do that. And I was just out there listening to you guys sing. And you know, a lot of times I'm up here with earbuds in, you know, and stuff like that. And I just quit singing because I was listening to the people of God just like sing those songs that are so familiar as one voice. And most of you guys over here sing really well. Some of you, you know, <laughs> sing unto the Lord, right? So, um, but it's really, really good to be with you, and uh, it was great uh, being on the front row listening to you guys worship. Um, this morning, we are in the last Sunday of a really short series where we looked at three snapshots in the book of Acts. And we were asking this question, like, how can we live as a fearlessly brave church into the culture that we're in? Because that looks a lot like what the early church did. They were fearlessly brave in some different ways. They were a people led by the Holy Spirit. And we want to be that to live out our faith in brave ways, much like that church was. And let's face it, we live in a time, it's real divisive, the needs of the people are harder to overcome, the tensions we face need more and more of God's kingdom spoken into them. So we want to remind ourselves, what does it look like to be a brave people? What does it mean like to live fearlessly with the gospel and to bring hope into dark places? So today, in finishing out, we're going to look at uh, one of these snapshots out of Acts that's particularly rattling. In fact, it was really disturbing to the people of that time and culture. But it's especially powerful when we talk about being a fearless group of Jesus people. Now, this passage is one of those in Scripture that can be a little perplexing when you read it. At first, you kind of wonder what God's trying to do and why He doesn't just say it clearly. However, I think that this is one of those passages of Scripture that really help us shape our understanding of God's heart and the gospel in some powerful ways. And here's an interesting thing about this passage, too. As we read it, you should be aware that this is a snapshot of an account of why and how we got here today in this room, how we were invited into God's story. And so as we read through this story, you're going to also see a couple of main characters you may or may not have heard of. Cornelius, who is a Gentile, which just means non-Jewish, uh, military leader, and then Peter, who you've probably heard from in Scripture. And Peter was a very, very, very devout Jewish disciple of Jesus. G Peter was the guy that really liked to follow the rules, especially the religious rules of Jewish culture. He knew all the rules of Leviticus like a good Jew would. He knew who to hang out with, who not to hang out with, what to wear, what not to wear, what to eat, what not to eat. He knew all of the 600 commandments, either in Scripture or written down in rabbinic laws, that a good Jew would follow. And so Peter would have done his best to follow all of these rules. And this desire of Peter to be a good rule follower is important as we unpack these things this morning. 
So I'm going to invite you to grab your device, grab your Bible, uh, whatever you use, or we'll have the Scripture on the screen. And we're going to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture this morning and get through it and then talk about its implications for us today. We're going to be in Acts 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 35. So I invite you to follow along. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So two different Simons. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This would have been about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this is where Peter's knowledge of Levitical rules comes out. And a voice came to him a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, so Peter was probably arguing, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, that's how we know he's Gentile, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together all his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he, he went in and he found many persons gathered. 
And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you then why you sent for me. Cornelius goes through his story. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no favoritism, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Big chunk of scripture. Some of it's kind of little wacky. It's like, what's the deal with this sheet and everything, right? For decades and decades, this vision of this sheet coming down to earth and animals being in it and this voice coming to Peter and saying, kill and eat, has been used to allow us to eat certain things like, well, like bacon. I was kind of waiting for an amen. And here's the... Okay, here's the rule. When I say bacon, you say amen. amen. Right. We love bacon. And thank God for the interpreters of Scripture that gave us clearance to eat barbecue. I mean, I love them and I agree with them. Here's the thing. That is at most a secondary point of this passage. You see, this primarily isn't a passage about menu items or dietary restrictions. It's a passage about tribalism. It's a passage about who's included and who's excluded. It's a passage about cliques and about groups. And this message to Peter that God shows no favoritism or no partiality, some of your versions will say, that he can hang out with Gentiles in the same room like he brought up would have been this life-altering, paradigm-shifting, whole deconstruction of what he had been taught his whole life, of what he had lived his whole life in his tribe, the Israelites, the Jewish culture. This broke down some of the hard, fast rules that he so passionately followed and thought he was supposed to follow. This was an event where God was breaking down Peter's tribal definitions. Or let me restate that a little bit. He was saying that the gospel is for everyone. Anyone made in the image of God is not uncommon. They're common together in his image. And here's the deal. It's really, it's hard for us to understand how earth-shattering and how paradigm-shifting this is for Peter because we, didn't, we don't live in that Jewish culture or in that tribe, and so we don't get this thing with Gentiles and Jews so much. It's kind of like a non-event for us in a way. 
And I was thinking about this idea of tribalism. And, or let me, let me state that a little different. The, the breaking down of perceptions about specific people based on differences. And I kept coming back to my own story, my own personal story. And it's really distasteful. And it's really embarrassing to tell you. But I kept telling Thomas and Jonathan and Susie and some others, it's like, I keep coming back to this. And they said, you need to tell it. Because it's my connection to understanding this shift that Peter made in tribalism. And, and maybe it will speak to you this morning. You see, I was raised in the deep south in Arkansas. And I lived in Little Rock. And my grandfather had a car dealership, a Chevy Cadillac Oldsmobile dealership, pretty big one, in Stuttgart, Arkansas, which is 50 miles southeast of Little Rock, and it's down in the Grand Prairie where there are rice fields and bean fields and cotton fields, and it's on the way to Mississippi. And this is the late 60s and early 70s, and I would hang out at that shop all the time. I loved hanging out around cars. I still do today. And I loved being around mechanics and in the shop. And there was a man that befriended me, a black man named Frank that worked for my grandfather. And I went with Frank everywhere. Frank taught me how to wash cars. He taught me how to clean the shop. He taught me how to change oil. We would run and get parts for mechanics that needed them. We'd deliver cars to people that had bought them. I was like Frank's shadow whenever I was at the shop. And I remember still to this day, the day that I realized I walked, followed Frank into the restroom in the shop. And there were two stalls, and on one stall there was a sign that said colored. Now I didn't understand that at that time. I remember being perplexed as to what that meant. Every time I went into the restroom with Frank, he went into that stall. I remember one time sneaking in there by myself. No one else was around. And I, shaking, I went up and opened that stall. And you know what I found? It looked exactly like the other stall. And then I remember two water fountains that were outside around the wall by the Coke machine in the shop. And over one of the water fountains, there was a sign, and it said, colored. There was one time when Frank and I were walking out the door to go run an errand, and I remember Frank stopped to get a drink of water, and I went right up behind Frank to get a drink of water. He grabbed me, and he got on to me. He said, no, boy, you don't drink at this fountain. You drink at that fountain. He was teaching me about something my culture believed about him. Now, I didn't understand all of this at 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I didn't really get it that I was being raised in a tribe, in a culture, in a family that was racist. I mean, not, you know, we weren't flag-flying Confederate or chanting and doing protests and all that, but boy, they were racist all the same. 
I know that today. Another part of my culture that I remember, my tribal culture, was in high school, and I went to Central High School. And you may remember Central High School from a group called the Little Rock Nine. The Little Rock Nine were four or, or nine black kids that were bust into this battleground of racial division where it was the nine of them against thousands of white students and the rest of the country as it was televised. That was my high school. And even 19 years after that event, I still felt the tinges and you could feel it in the air, the racial tension that was there. Now later in my life, about 20 years old, God's sense of humor, I think, kind of gave me my own sheep moment. And looking back on this, I can see how God gave me this path out of my tribalism and into what I believe today. And I got this opportunity to go on tour with a major concert tour, 20 years old. I knew all this stuff about sound and lights and everything. And so I had this opportunity through some open doors to be the production manager on my first major concert tour. And it was a blues tour and all, some of all the greats were there, Denise LaSalle and Bobby Blue Bland and ZZ Hill and yes, B.B. King. I got to work for B.B. King. And two or three shows into this tour, I realized, oh, I'm the only white guy on the tour. And so God was flipping things upside down to teach me some things, what he wanted me to learn. I even remember B.B. as I got to know him a little bit. We'd pass on stage or in the hallway or whatever, be walking around. He's like, hey, how's my, white, my token white boy today? And he'd chuckle. You see, I, I had to take a journey. I had to do a paradigm shift from what my tribe had taught me. I never really felt racist personally, but I had been raised in this culture, in this family, of, in this doctrine, really, of division based on skin color. And luckily, God took me on a path to where today, some of my best friends are of all different ethnicities. Our youngest daughter is of Asian descent. I don't really see people in their color anymore. And I'm grateful for that. And I don't bring up these distasteful racial stories of my past to make anyone feel bad or embarrass anyone. I don't want to do that. But here's what I want to show. That the tribalism that we are taught can be a powerful thing in our lives. It really can. In fact, the tribalism that we learn from our culture, from others, from our backgrounds and traditions, even from our religious traditions, can be this hurdle that the gospel has to overcome. And I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but what we learn from our traditions, even religious traditions, can actually keep the good news of God's kingdom from being announced to others. Because it's easier to just stay in our tribe. It's easier to just hang out with our peeps. It's easier to just be in our own social structures, to be with people at Pulpit Rock Church. It's easier to be in this room and talk about the kingdom 
than to live that kingdom out with people that are different than us. For Peter and this group of Gentiles at Cornelius' house, God broke down the walls between Jew and Gentile, which was a shock for both groups. And they had to learn it and be taught that. And as scary as it can be, I think sometimes God still wants and needs to break down our own tribalism, our barriers, our boxes where we put people. The primary lesson of this passage is what Peter said he learned. Truly, I understand that God shows no favoritism. So here's the hard question that we have to ask ourselves today, I believe. And I have to ask myself, what tribal barriers still exist in my life? I mean, really, what persons or group of people do I divide myself from? What behaviors or beliefs or orientations make me uncomfortable and cause me to define others? is different or other than me, or maybe we even catch ourselves looking at someone that's different and defining them as unclean. We may not say that, but in our mind, that's what we come up with. Understanding that God shows no favoritism, no partiality, allows us to step into uncomfortable places and be fearlessly brave as we live out the gospel. It allows us to hang out, if you will, with the Gentiles of our day, however we would define that, those that we consider unclean, uncommon. Now, even before this obvious experience of Peter's, this lesson, Jesus was modeling inclusion of people on the outside or fringes all during his ministry on earth. We see it throughout the Gospels. And in one example, we get an exchange between the religious rulers of the day and the disciples, by the way, of which Peter would have been standing there having this discussion with them. And this is how Matthew reports it. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples... Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you'll allow me, let me paraphrase that simpler. I desire that you love your neighbor above loving religious rules. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is saying is that he has come to include more people in the kingdom, more than just those that follow the religious rules of the tribe. So what are our religious rules that we expect? Jesus, if you will, was adding more chairs to the table. You know, in Luke, it says Jesus came eating and drinking. And we always see him around the table with people, especially people on the margins. 
And it's like he's pulling up a, ta- a chair and inviting anyone to have a seat that wants to learn more about the kingdom that he came to announce. You know, I love that metaphor of the table, and it's a strong one for us here at Pulpit Rock. We're always talking about the table, and we're always saying, you know, we want to invite people to pull up a chair and have a conversation about Christianity and about Jesus and about that journey. We invite people to sit at the table no matter where you are in life and find out more about the kingdom. Well, maybe we could even take that metaphor that we have so much here in our language and we could expand it just a little bit more. And I want to explain it with an example. And I'm going to go over here and get something. Our family, my wife and I, just moved from Monument down to Colorado Springs. And we moved right down in the middle of downtown on Willamette. And we found a little house that's half the size. We love it. And when we moved, we knew that we wanted to move into a neighborhood setting. We traded our back porch for our front porch. We wanted people walking down the streets. We wanted to get to know our neighbors and who they were. And part of this vision of moving in with an intentionality into our neighborhood was our table. Because the metaphor here at Pulpit Rock has affected us and how we view that and how we look. So when we moved into this cool little 1901 house that's been redone, we actually had the perfect table. It was really vibey and really cool, and, but it was round, and we discovered it only had six chairs, and you couldn't put any more chairs around it. Well, that just wasn't going to do, because for us, the table needed to be able to be expanded. And so, we took our little table, and we went to Platt Furniture, a used furniture shop, and we traded it in. And we started looking for a table that we could expand. And that's it. And you'll see on the end of that table, it's kind of cool. You can put a leaf in it. And it can go from six to eight. But what was really cool about this table is that it came with two leaves. Because you could put one at the other end too. And it could go from six to eight. And from eight to ten And if you work hard at it, you can put 12 chairs around that table. And so we could keep expanding the table and having people sit around our table to display the kingdom of God as we love our neighbor. And you'll notice that we changed up our chairs and painted them all different, and they're all different. And that that came from our last sermon series and this idea that everyone is different and on a different journey. And we want people to pull up a chair to the table, no matter how different that they are. So here's the question. What would it look like for us as a church, not only to tell people, pull up a chair to our table here at Pulpit Rock, what would it look like to actually expand the table? What would it look like to make the table bigger in the places that all of us live, work, and play all around our city? What does it look like to make our table bigger here at this campus? What does it look like to make bigger tables in your homes as you carry the kingdom into your neighborhoods, 
into your workplaces, into your third spaces where you play and, and congregate. It makes me think of this meme that's been floating around for several months. I've, it comes from David Fitch's book, I'm pretty sure, but there's a lot of different renditions of it. This is the one that I like the most. If God has blessed you with more, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. And so if you have more wood, are you going to have this posture of a fence or are you going to have this posture of a table? Because we can choose. And we have, in fact, been blessed beyond belief. And I'm, and I'm not th talking about financially, even though we are, but I'm talking about the gospel that has saved us from death. We have been blessed with a kingdom a good kingdom with a good king. And we always should be expanding our table and telling that story to people. And you know what? That story should be told with people outside of the tribe as well as inside of the tribe. And I know that sounds like an obvious application for us as a faith community. We're, we're pretty brave here at Pulpit Rock, and we invite people to pull up a chair and join us at the table. But inside this room, it's easy for us to kind of nod our head and say, yeah, amen, we all agree with that. But this is harder to do in real life. When you really start doing it, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard. Even Peter, after this mystical mystical, miraculous encounter with this angel of the Lord, and Cornelius falls back into his tribal ways. We read later on an account written by Paul to the church in Galatia, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him in public because he was clearly wrong. Before some men who had been sent by James arrived there, Peter had been eating with the Gentile believers, obviously. But after these men arrived, he drew back and would not eat with the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who were in favor of circumcising them. So he was afraid of those that followed religious rules. The other Jewish believers also started acting like cowards along with Peter, and even Barnabas was swept along by their cowardly action. Pretty harsh words from Paul. And so even Peter proclaiming, I now understand that God shows no favoritism, had trouble shedding his tribal tendencies and what he had been taught. He was scared of what others in his tribe might think of him. Does that ever happen to us? I think so. I think we're a little fearful, maybe, of what others might think of us if we hang out at a table with the wrong people. Because the truth is, it's easier to hang out with our tribe, with people we agree with, with people that agree with us. And sometimes our fear of what others will think keeps us from sitting at a table with those that need to hear the kingdom, that need to be loved as our neighbor. And so we respond to that fear by keeping a distance from them. But that's not the brave move. The brave move is, is to add a leaf to the table 
add a couple of chairs and see who might sit down with you and just live life. Being at the table together allows you the chance to display the kingdom of God, give them a taste of the kingdom, if you will, with others as the way you love them as your neighbor. What God was teaching Peter is true for us today, that the gospel is for all people, especially those outside of our Christian tribe. And if the good news is going to be spread, if the kingdom is to be announced, then we must sit with people that we normally don't sit with. For Peter, it was Gentiles. So who is it for you? Who is it for me? Yes, they may have different political views. It's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, they may have different faith and belief systems. It's going to be hard. Yes, they may have different sexual orientations or ways of living or values. That's going to be uncomfortable. But no matter how far apart you are, I promise you this, if you'll just sit down at a table, if you'll see people as people first before behavior and belief, you'll be surprised how close you really are. You know, a couple of years ago, Thomas told a story on a Sunday morning in here about a guy named Daryl Davis. Maybe you remember this. Daryl was this fantastic black keyboard player, musician, professional, and he actually encountered, started encountering some of the members of the KKK because they would come in here and play because he played like they said, like Jerry Lee Lewis. Really, he played like black musicians that taught Jerry Lee Lewis. But he started befriending these guys across a table. And he started realizing if I just sit down with these guys, I can actually break down some barriers. And so he had this idea to write a book, and so he started requesting interviews with several members of the KKK. He even requested an interview with the Imperial Wizard of the KKK in Maryland, Roger Kelly. And while their relationship started out really tense, over time, they became friends. And eventually, this Imperial Wizard not only asked Daryl to be his daughter's godfather, but he left the Ku Klux Klan and he gave his robe to Daryl Davis, which Daryl kept. To this day, Daryl is responsible for over 200 men and women leaving the Ku Klux Klan and leaving that awful ideology. And he has closets full of robes. And he keeps them to make a point that all you have to do is add a leaf to the table, pull up a chair, see someone as a person first, and overcome those hurdles. And you can break down these tribal barriers that we live within. So what tribe of people are out there that you and I should be sitting down with? Who are you scared to sit down with at a table? And maybe that's 
who God wants you to sit down with? What unclean group of Gentiles will we be brave enough to be in a room with or at a table with? And look, I know everyone in here, everyone in here is for the sharing of the gospel. You want the best for people's lives. I know it. You want the kingdom of God to be discovered by people that need the kingdom of God. We all believe that. But here's the thing. It's hard to convince people that a God that they can't see loves them when a church that they can see doesn't seem to like them. So who do we not like? And maybe we need to overcome that. Once Peter and the other disciples began to share the story of Jesus with the Gentiles, and then once they both started sharing the story of Jesus together, the church exploded. It exploded all the way to this room 2,000 years later. And so it's made me start thinking, what might happen if you and I, if everyone here at Pulpit Rock in this community, what if all of us started inviting someone outside of our tribe to a table, to a discussion? Might the kingdom expand in Colorado Springs, in your neighborhood, in the places you live and play? I think so. When I was growing up, I remember us getting the table leaf out for our table. It was this big white table with a wood top. And we got it out on Christmas primarily because that's when the family all came together and we needed more space. And my mom would send me to go get the table leaf. And she had to remember where it was and it was in one of the closets up there and so I'd have to find it and it was in the back of a closet and I'd have to dig everything out from the closet and pull the table leaf out and then she'd have to dust it off and get it cleaned up to put in the table. And I remember my mom and dad like trying to get that table to expand because it never was expanded. It was just sat there and so it got stuck. And eventually they'd get the table leaf out and we could invite more people around the table and have Christmas dinner. So I wanna ask you a question and I'm, and I'm not trying to be judgmental or mean. In fact, I'm gonna ask this question of myself too. Do you know where your table leaf is? Well, I know where mine is. It's right here. <laughs> but you know what I mean, metaphorically. How often do you get your table leaf out? Do you have to dust it off? Do you have to find it? I know some of you are saying, well, I've just got this little round table or it doesn't have table leaves. Well, go to Platt Furniture and buy a table that expands. Everyone at Pulpit Rock, if any church, should have tables that have table leaves. And they should always be at hand. And we should always be ready to throw the table leaves in and invite more people around the table and love them as our neighbor and do what Jesus did and share food and share the kingdom. This should be the rhythm of who we are outside of our tribe as well as inside 
of our tribe. Because God shows no favoritism, no partiality. He didn't show favoritism with us, thank God, because we didn't belong in this kingdom, but He made it happen. The gospel is big enough for everyone. The gospel's big enough for you to expand your tribe. The gospel is big enough for you to get over your tribal fears and to engage people that are different than you. Different behaviors, different beliefs, different value systems. You will be amazed what God does through you when you just sit at a table with someone. My prayer, our prayer at Pulpit Rock is that you never see your table the same again. And for those of you that have tables that have leaves, you know that little, you know that little crack in the center of the table or at the end where you add a leaf? I hope that every time you walk by your table and you see that crack in the table, I hope you're reminded of Peter and the Gentiles coming together. And even more so, I hope it causes you to ask the question, who should I be inviting around my table? How can I put a table leaf in and pull up a couple of chairs and see who will come? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and I want to kind of give you a thought as we finish this morning to think about. We were invited to God's kingdom table. We're invited to a feast. Several places in Scripture talk about us being invited to a banquet, and we have a seat waiting for us at that banquet. And we live in that kingdom now as part of that kingdom. Even as broken as we are, Let's face it, I know how broken I am. Surely you know how broken you are and the things you fight. Even as broken as we are, God says, pull up a chair to the table. We're like broken vessels of this news of the kingdom. And so what broken vessels could we invite to simply eat with us, to journey with us, to live with us. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want to pray as we worship some more. God, we love you, and we worship you. We honor you. We are in awe of the fact that we sit at a table with the King, that we've been invited to pull up a chair in spite of our brokenness and our sins and our flaws, that in Christ we have been restored and renewed. And so God, impress upon us how we can live brave, how we can live fearlessly, how we can get over our fears of people that are different so that we can live the kingdom life on life, face to face. Thank you for our seat at the table, God.